Welcome to Palm Sunday 2021. It's good to be back in spring. March 20th was the first official day of spring, and yesterday marked the first full week of the spring, and it's been a beautiful week. Yesterday was gorgeous. Friday was gorgeous. The flowers in our garden are pushing their way upwards. The grass is beginning to grow. Baseball season is upon us. We have a losing record so far, but you know there is always hope. Hope for this year. FFC softball, we'll see how that turns out, right? That's going to be up and going this year. We were in the playoffs last year, is that right? Or the last time that we played, so we'll see, uh, we'll see how that pans out for this year. Well, sometimes people wonder why we talk about sports on Sunday morning. Well, sports are biblical, right? Aren't they? Amen? Sports are biblical. Paul was into track and field. He said, we got to run the good race. we got to press on to the mark of the higher calling. And, of course, football is there, and it came to pass. is mentioned in the King James Bible 398 times in the Old Testament, 65 times in the New Testament. I knew God was a football fan. I don't know who he roots for, but I knew he was a football fan. And, of course, baseball is there. The very first verse of the Bible says, in the big inning, right? These are old jokes, of course. Tennis is there as well. In Genesis, it says, and Joseph served in the courts of Pharaoh. And of course, you know, we can't leave out basketball. It is March Madness. During a lively game of pickup basketball, Peter denied Jesus three times. <laughs> well... If you want to know what's really going on in the Bible, we trust you'll find that you are in the right place. And we want to remind you, if you missed a message, any message, you can always catch up by going to FFC Sermon or sermons.org, where you can download, listen online, listen via podcast. You can also go to www.ffcph.org, where you can click on the live link and view a previously aired message on YouTube or Facebook. This morning and next, we'll be stepping away from our series in Acts, the birth of the church, and focusing on the Easter holiday season. This being Palm Sunday, let's pray and see what God has for us. Father, we thank you for your presence here this morning. We thank you that you are worthy of our praise, as we sang so much this morning, that you are the one to whom we owe everything. We thank you for sending your son, for him being willing to die, and for him rising again. Father, all these things we thank you for, we do so in Jesus' name, amen. Little Johnny was sick on Palm Sunday and stayed home from church with his mother. His father came home from church holding a palm branch. The little boy was curious and asked, Dad, why do you have that palm branch? And Dad said, well, you see, son, when Jesus came into town... Everyone waved palm branches to honor him. And so we got palm branches today. Oh, man, just my luck, the little boy said. The one Sunday I miss church is the Sunday that Jesus shows up. Well, this is Palm Sunday, and, and as we prepare for Good Friday and for Easter next week, I want to this morning look at uh, the history and look at Easter and Palm Sunday in particular from a perspective of a focus on praise, and more importantly on the object of our praise, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you want to follow along, please open your Bibles to Luke 19, starting in, Acts, uh, starting in verse 28. 
If you're using the pew Bibles that are in the rows in front of you, it should be on page 744 or on your, uh, your device. I will also have the scripture up here as well. Now, if you've ever asked a small child what they learned in church, you never know what you might get. You might get a deep theological truth. You might get a funny story. You might get both. A dad asked his son, who was around five on Palm Sunday, so what did you learn in church today, son? He expected to hear about Jesus on a donkey and people waving palm branches. Instead, his son said, we learned not to poke anyone in the eye. Now, that's a good lesson to learn on Palm Sunday because palms are sharp. We learn not to poke anyone in the eye. That wasn't what his dad expected. His dad expected to tell him, for him to tell him the Bible story, to share the facts. He wanted to get the, the flannel graph version of the story. Anyone old enough to remember the flannel graph era when everything was taught in Sunday school on flannel graphs? We would wait for the teacher to turn her back and then tell our own story. Jesus got kicked off the donkey but made a perfect landing. Whatever we could do with the things while she wasn't looking. He wanted to hear that flannel graph version of the story. Jesus riding in on a donkey to large crowds. The crowd shouting, Hosanna! And waving branches. He wasn't uh, he, he wanted to make sure that he was getting all of the, the facts straight. We're good at facts. And as I read the story, I'm drawn to the historical and the cultural setting. The fact that Hosanna was more of a, a political chant for the overthrow of the Romans than it was for a call for spiritual deliverance. The fact that waving a palm branch was like waving the national flag. Or the fact that as Jesus rode in, to Jerusalem, his people were in the process of selecting their Passover lambs. And in essence, he was saying, here I am, pick me, pick me. All of these facts can help us better understand Jesus, his words and his expectation of those who follow him. We can recite the facts of the story, but sometimes we get caught up in the facts and we lose sight of the heart of the matter. Paul says in Corinthians, he says, So whatever you eat or drink, and whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Because we were created for his glory, to worship him in spirit and in truth. And in spite of what we know is coming, the Easter season is a time that calls for praise and rejoicing and hope. All nature sings and shouts and waves its praise to the creator in its most boldest and brilliant color that it can. And we who are born-again believers have a special reason to rejoice at Easter. For while Christmas heralds the birth of our Savior and Messiah and is the opening shout in the battle against evil, it has begun, the Bible proclaims. Easter is a victory celebration. It is finished, Jesus will cry in a week from now. It is finished. The work is done. The work of redemption is done. The path of salvation. Jesus sacrificed to complete the plan. He died so that we could live. When I look at the scriptures that we will read, it makes me ask why there are not more amens and hallelujahs in the world. Why there is not more praise in the hearts of his people. Why do we save praise just for Sunday? Why do we save it for Easter and Christmas? Jesus says the very rocks and hills will cry out if we don't. So why are we silent? Well, let's take a look at the background of the story. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. 
riding to the completion of his purpose here on earth. In just a few days, his work will be finished. He will be crucified. Peter even rebukes Jesus in Matthew, telling him, these things will never happen to you. But Jesus knew that he must go. His love compelled him. It guided him. It drove him to the cross. And along the way, he stops in Bethany and gathers up a donkey. Starting in verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Jesus had been in Bethany before, many times perhaps, and it was the place of one of his greatest miracles. Even though, as the disciples pointed out, the last time they were there, they tried to stone him. Maybe it's not such a good idea to go back there. But it was here in Bethany that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And just to be sure everyone knew it was a miracle, Jesus took his time getting there. Four days so he could make sure that Lazarus was good and dead. In fact, he wanted to roll back the stone, and his sister said, Lord, surely he stinketh by now. He's kicking up a funk. The miracles, the healings, the teachings he had done here and in many places throughout the, the lands had prompted many to believe that he is going to ride into Jerusalem as the long-awaited Messiah. And now they see him seated on a donkey, and they are excited. The long-awaited conqueror is coming. The fulfillment of prophecy is here, even if they missed it. Back in Zechariah, he prophesied, Rejoice greatly, people of Jerusalem. Shout for joy, people of Jerusalem. Your king is coming to you. He does what is right and he saves. He is gentle and riding on a donkey, on the colt of a donkey. Jesus is making his grand entrance into the city. And just a little background, as the people would have waved their palm branches and would have shouted Hosanna, you need to understand that this isn't the first time that this has happened. In fact, it was a traditional greeting. The people were very accustomed to greeting a national hero, a conquering king, that would come into the city this way. When they knew that a person was coming, they would gather at the entrance and they would wave palm branches because the palm branch was a national symbol of victory. And they would shout Hosanna, which means save us. And the crowd was shouting and chanting, save us, save us. But you know, there's a very interesting thing about some of this crowd, is that they were there from a perspective of what's in it for me. Their perspective of the entire event, the entire process, the whole entrance was simply what's in it for me. You see, they weren't looking for a savior from their sins. They were simply looking for someone who would overthrow the Romans, get them off of their back. Because they were under Roman rule and they didn't like it. They wanted to get out from underneath of the Romans. And they heard about this guy, Jesus, who would raise Lazarus from the dead. And so a lot of them who had heard the news that Jesus is coming, down, uh, coming to, to town want to check that out. And an entourage had already gathered outside the city. And so his excited followers, his disciples, shouted, Hosannas! 
They cut down palm branches and waved them and laid them in the road to make a royal path for the king. They threw down their coats and they raised their voices. Let's think about that and look at this praise and the significance that it has for us today. Verse 36 to 38 says, And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When they came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Praise is common in the church today. Praise is common in Jesus' time in the temple. David says that they were to enter his gates with thanksgiving in their hearts. Uh, with thanksgiving and his and enter his case, uh, courts with praise, give thanks to him and praise his name. Psalm one hundred four. But this praise was different. This praise was not inside the walls of the church. It wasn't inside of the courts of the temple. This praise, these shouts, these hosannas and hallelujahs and amens were outside the temple, outside the church, out in the road, out in the city. These praises were not bound by walls or establishments or rituals. This is real praise, bona fide praise, not just Sunday and midweek praise. They are coming down the Mount of Olives, coming into town by one of the busiest roads in the whole area, on one of the busiest days of the year. Thousands are there. It's a secular setting, not not a church setting. And it's the, the kind of time and place where you might not expect to see or hear the praise of God. It's coloring outside the lines of praise, getting outside of the box, stepping out in faith into a new area of ministry. And they are singing praises. I realize the lack of praise often when I, when I go outside the boundaries of the church, when I, when I go to work on Monday, when I go to the grocery store, when I go to restaurants, when I go to Walmart. spent a lot of time in Walmart this past year. One of the few places that was open. It can be disheartening, even more so when as believers it affects us so that we walk around all gloomy and disheartened, self-focused instead of Christ-focused. But then when I least expect it, when I need it the most, someone glorifies God and shouts out a praise for something he's done. It might be in the next aisle. Oh, thank you, Jesus. I got the last box of macaroni and cheese. Because you knew there was a run on that for a while, a run on toilet paper, a run on cleaning supplies, whatever it might be. And it's then that I realized most of all, myself included, that we do not praise God often enough, either within or outside the walls of the church. But we need to, because his blessings extend outside the walls of the church, and so should our praises. I know if Ron were speaking here today, I bet he'd be saying, if God has been good to you, let me hear you testify. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. You know he has been. Verse 37 says, For the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Notice with me those words. The whole crowd of disciples. That's all of his followers. All of them were shouting praises. All of his followers began to shout and sing. God's Word says that we are to make a joyful noise to the Lord. We are to praise Him. Praise Him for what He has done for us, for what He is going to do for us. Praise Him because we are not getting what we deserve. Amen? Praise Him in the morning. Praise Him in the evening. Praise Him when you're young and when you're old. 
Listen, God does not require all of us to be beautiful singers, eloquent prayers, or, or dynamic preachers or teachers. But he does expect all of us to make a joyful noise in praise. Singing praises by telling people what he has done for you. Singing praises, shouting praises, living praises. I sometimes wonder how a believer, someone who's been forgiven, redeemed, saved, could sit quietly and not shout those praises, not tell someone. I want you to take note, this was unanimous praise from the multitude of believers, his disciples, his followers. This was what set them apart from the crowd, from the unbelieving world. There were many people in town that day, but Jesus' followers were different. They were shouting and praising, shouldn't we? While this praise was unanimous among the disciples, disciples, that is, every believer was shouting and praising God, not everyone was on board. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees in the crowd and some others were not joining in. They were red-faced and ticked off and trying to find something to criticize. Listen, God doesn't expect the Pharisees, the unbelievers, to break out with praise, though he'd love them to do that, though he wants to do that, wants them to do that. He does, but he does expect his children to do so. And on this day they did. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And it was glorious. It was joyful praise. Excited praise. Praise of gratitude. Praise of anticipation. It was not sad music. It wasn't funeral music. They rejoiced. It was a joyful praise. One of the, the key emotions in our biblical model of praise is joy. We should be joyful, filled with joy. And thanks for the hope that it brings. Joy should flow from our bones and our souls and be heard in our praises. Many folks just sort of, uh, they fall into that mode of, of uh, praise only when they come into the church building. I know this is true because it's what I used to do. Hugs and handshakes all around, amens all over the place, sing the songs, pray the prayers, listen to the message, and, and then put on my outside face. Put on my not church face, put on my weekly face, and go back to life as usual. Some might say, well, I have nothing to be joyful about. And from a human standpoint, I know that there are those here this morning whose hearts are heavy. Those who wonder if anyone has been through what they've been through. Those whose lives are filled with tension and fear and anger and defeat. But as Christians, our praise is independent on our circumstances, but should be focused on the saving grace we have experienced in Christ, through his very blood, through his love, focused on the hope that we have received with praises of thanks and praises of expectations of things to come. Let our praise, like that of Jesus' followers on that day on the road to Jerusalem, have roots that go much deeper than a spur of the moment, deeper than just Sunday, deeper than a second thought. Our praise needs to be part of our very being and our lives. Praise with a purpose. Let us say, even though my life is caving in around me and it feels as the wolves are trying to tear me apart, even though I, I struggle to get here on Sunday having having plotted through the week and all of its troubles, though through the mire of temptation and sin, my heart is still lifted up because in spite of it all, I am loved. I have been redeemed. I have been bought with a price. My destiny is firmly established, and I know that he cares for me. 
Our voice should be lifted up by the very thought of God's eternal love for us in Jesus Christ, by the hope we have in Jesus. And we should still be praising God, not for our troubles, but in spite of them. After all, these believers, I'm sure if you had pulled them out of the multitude, they would surely have said, well, on the surface, there's little to praise God for. Little to throw their only jacket under the feet of the donkeys for. They were still under Roman rule. They were still living in poverty. There was still taxes and Pharisees and sickness and tragedies that fell upon them. But still they praised for what they had seen and heard and experienced. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They praised anyway. Praise was necessary. In fact, it was required. Notice the unbelievers in the crowd, the spiritually blind, saying, Quit all that mess. Jesus, they said, Tell them to be quiet. Tell them to stop it. Maybe they were worried about their own power. Maybe they were worried that the Romans would see this as an insurrection. Maybe they were afraid of the rebellion that it could cause. But in any case, they said, Jesus, make them shut up. And Jesus showed them that praise was necessary. He says, I tell you, he replied, if they kept quiet, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. There must be praise, Jesus says. The word of Jesus tells us a few things about the world. The first is that there is a closer connection between the natural world and redemption than we may think. Paul says that the entire creation groans for redemption. And from the beginning we see how creation was twisted with thorns and thistles and infested because of sin. The psalmist writes in Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day their speech is poured out. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. The earth itself praises God even if we fail to. I don't see how anyone could look at a new birth, new life. Lucy, our fourth grandchild, will be born in just a few short weeks. I don't see anyone could look at new birth wherever it's coming from and deny the existence of God or stand and look at the Grand Canyon or the Rocky Mountains and all of this and just say, it just happened by chance. All of God's creation sings praises. Jesus tells the religious leaders and us in the process that praise is not elective, not a choice. It is a necessity. There must be praise. I have no doubt those stones would indeed have cried out if the people had kept silent. And that leads to the question for us. Being made in the likeness of God, what should our response to the mercy of God be. Those of us who have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness, delivered from the storms and wrecks in our lives, renewed, restored, and redeemed. I can answer that question. We need to, as Nehemiah commanded, to stand up and to praise our God who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted among all. Blessing and praise. And as the psalmist tells us in Psalm 100, shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. 
His unfailing love continues forever. And His faithfulness continues from generation to generation. If God's people will not praise Him, the stones will. The trees will. The earth will. Why? Because praise is a necessity. But this praise was, sadly, in the midst of sorrow. Verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, we read that Jesus wept over it. Why did he weep? Jesus wept because they, even in their praise, didn't get it. They did not fully understand. The people had made him in their minds a conquering hero, a knight in shining armor, the one who worked miracles and and refused to be crowned king earlier Uh, the one who is now boldly riding in Jerusalem, and they think that he is going to to charge in and destroy the Romans, set the people free from oppression, make the rulers of the world alongside, make them rulers of the world side along him. So why is he crying? Jesus may have been the only person weeping that day in Jerusalem. He wept because he knew that soon they would understand. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and they'll circle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God coming to you. Worship team, you can make your way back up. He came into the city that day not to deliver them from the world, not from the... uh, the problems of this world, but to deliver them from something much deeper, from the real root of the problem, from sin and the penalty of sin that was in their lives. Jesus rode, on, rode in on a cult to give them hope and an eternal future. And as Jesus looked down at the city, he wept. He wept for the crowds cheering. He wept while they shouted praises. And still Jesus weeps. He weeps as he sees a multitude who are blind. Spiritually blind to the fact that the Savior is here, here today, here in our midst, God in the flesh, and still they reject him. Later they will crucify him and think that they have done God a favor. And he weeps. He weeps over lost souls, defeated lives, people who are held in bondage that could be set free. We as believers need to be leading the praise, leading the lost to the object of our praise. We get caught up in knowledge more and in understanding more clearly. And we forget that the purpose of knowing is becoming. To become more like Him. To not just have an intellectual knowledge of Him, but to take His teachings, His commandments in the Scriptures, His yoke, which is easy, and apply it to today. Jesus says that the greatest command of all is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. In essence, the rest of Scripture is a a commentary on how to do that. And as he rode that donkey into Jerusalem, he wasn't just looking for a crowd to shout Hosanna and wave palm branches. He was looking for a group of followers who had the faith of a child who understood that you shouldn't poke anyone in the eye with a palm branch on any given Sunday. And he commands us to share that love in his story. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you're just hearing about this, you've heard about it maybe all your life, let me tell you, it's not what you think. What you've heard is probably half wrong, full of lies and half-truths. He is a man who came here for you with no reason to other than that he loved you. 
and that he wants to redeem you and set you free from the trouble and pain that is in your life. Does it mean life will be carefree? No, in fact, being a Christian is not an easy path to walk. In fact, he tells us as believers, we will have trouble. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You want to overcome in your life? Know Jesus today. Know this one who rode in to Jerusalem, the one who was worthy of our praise this morning. Say, Lord, I just I want that in my life. I confess my sin. Come into my life. I want to be one of your followers. And he will today. And you will rejoice forevermore. Faith Fellowship, know that God is for you and not against you. Have a good day in Jesus.